quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. With everything that's going down in Georgia, I thought it'd be a great time to check in with an old friend of The Axe Files, former Deputy Attorney General and U.S. Attorney for Northern Georgia, Sally Yates. Yates, who you'll remember, was fired by President Trump as Acting Attorney General, after she refused to have department lawyers defend a travel ban that she feared was unconstitutional, has been relatively quiet as the cases against Trump have unfolded. Until now, here's that conversation. Sally Yates, it is always great to see you. Good to have you here again. And it's a propitious time to have you Because as we were talking about before we began recording, Georgia's ground zero for the news uh, this week. President Trump is coming to be booked at the county jail. As you pointed out beforehand, it's kind of a surreal thing to say. Um, But you haven't commented much on any of this. Uh, And I know you well enough to know you have some thoughts uh, so tell me why you've been uh, circumspect about it and and tell me what you think about uh, this particular indictment in Georgia. Oh, well, it's always a treat to be with you, David. So thank you for inviting me back. I, I guess I, I don't know that it was a conscious decision to be circumspect, but as this has been a matter that's been under investigation by DOJ for the last couple of years, I kind of felt like the last thing that they needed was, you know, somebody from the cheap seats out there um, providing play-by-play of how that investigation was going. And, you know, I generally don't say much unless I feel like I've got something to add that hasn't been said by lots of other commentators who are out there. So, um, again, not really a conscious decision, but just didn't think that my voice was particularly necessary. You sort of touch on a point that has been raised by critics and that is about the pace of this investigation and the time it took to bring these indictments, which has now put uh, them right on the doorstep of a of another presidential election. Was that a mistake? Could it have gone faster? Well, look, I, th- I think we all wish that this had happened earlier so that we wouldn't be colliding with a presidential election. But I don't know what was going on at DOJ during that time and what factors they were considering and what other work they were doing. So I know how frustrated I was when I was there and people would um, would lodge criticism when they didn't necessarily have all the facts. So I'm not going to second guess them here. But I, we all recognize that this has complicated things a bit. One of the complications is just the fact of prosecuting a former president and all the implications of that. And we see some of the reverberations of that. We'll talk about that. But things sort of picked up 
very rapidly when Jack Smith was appointed uh, as the special counsel. I think you came to the department in Washington just as he was leaving to become a, a U.S. attorney, but have you had interactions with him in the past? Are you familiar with him? Sure, sure. I'm acquainted with Jack from his time in the public integrity pen, um, mm-hmm. as we called it in DOJ. You know, he's a career prosecutor. He was there for a long time. I was a public corruption prosecutor before I was U.S. attorney in DAG. And so we crossed paths in that way. And look, Jack is a talented, no-nonsense guy. And I think we've seen that um, in, in the indictments um, that have been returned in relatively short order um, from the time that he was appointed. Not deranged, huh? Not deranged at all. Although, you know, I, I would imagine that former President Trump would have written that quote about anyone who was on the other side of the V from him. So I, I wouldn't ascribe that to Jack Smith. He has a pattern, and the pattern is to denounce prosecutors who are people of color as racist and to attach other things like deranged to other uh, prosecutors. It, it It's pretty predictable. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're right. So talk to me about this Georgia indictment. 18 people, uh, this RICO count. What struck you about this indictment? Were you surprised by the scope of it? And explain to me as a layman how one tries 18 people at once. That's going to be tough. Um, look, I think there's sort of two different strategies or approaches that you can take in something like this. And I think we saw Jack Smith take one and the Fulton County DA take the other. You can do sort of this scalpel approach where you try to eliminate any legal issues you charge, just the single defendant. You go ahead and address, for example, First Amendment defenses right out of the gate at the beginning with the idea of, of going as narrow as you can um, while still capturing the, the gravity of the conduct. The flip side of that is what obviously the Fulton County DA did, and that is to tell the whole story from the beginning to the end and to to bring in all of the players so that you're painting a really complete picture for the jury. I don't see how there's any way in the world you try all of those defendants at one time, but I don't think she thinks she's going to be trying all of those at one time. In any multi-defendant case, you usually end up with a number of the lower-level folks pleading guilty and entering into some type of negotiated plea, and I would expect that that's what she thinks will happen here as well. I agree with you. It's totally unruly to have 18 defendants at one time. I can't even just imagine 18 cross-examinations of a single witness. I mean, that, that doesn't work. I, and a lot of lawyers, too. Oh, gosh, a, yeah. I don't know what court would be big <laughs> enough for that. Yeah. Well, you've got a basketball arena there. That might, well, I guess uh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, you mentioned that Jack Smith took a different tack. The federal indictment took a different tack. I assume that part of that was uh, an awareness that uh, dealing with this in a speedy way uh, to get some uh, clarity uh, before the election and mindful of the fact that Donald Trump is a candidate uh, and uh, you can't have this extending into the latter parts of a campaign were part of what motivated him. Uh, when do you think these 
cases are likely to actually be tried? Well, you know, I think there's certainly a much greater chance that you could bring the federal case more quickly than the state case for all the reasons you've already mentioned, that the number of defendants, the scope of it. And look, I certainly don't know, haven't talked to Jack Smith about this. He wouldn't tell me even if I did talk to him in terms of of what the motivation was. But I think it was wise to bring a narrow case there that could be tried before an election. You know, the people of this country have a right to hear that evidence and to to know the truth before they cast their votes and to do everything reasonably possible to be able to accomplish that. And I think the way that he has charged the two cases, both the one in, in Florida as well, as the DC case are designed, appear to be designed to accomplish that. The documents case is the one you referred to right. there. What, right. What's your sense of reading these indictments about the relative strength of all of these indictments? We haven't even mentioned the one in New York that may get dried first, but I know that curiosity, at the very least, must have seized you. You must have read these indictments. What was your impression of them and the strength of the cases? Yeah, I mean, look, you never know what all the evidence is going to be, um, and particularly in terms of, of what the defense would bring out. But look, I think they're, they appear to be really strong cases. Um, you know, on the documents case in Florida, let's put aside for the moment the actual retention of classified documents. The obstruction there is just overwhelming. And that's really what distinguishes it from any kind of good faith, accidental retention of of a classified document. I'm not sure they would have actually brought a case if it were just the retention and he had willingly turned over all of the documents when they were identified. And the same thing with respect to the D.C. case um, on the attempt to, you know, I'm, I'm hard pressed to know exactly how to describe this. Is it subverting an election? Is it, you know, what what term do you put on it? In some ways, it seems like it's hard to overstate the gravity of what was happening here. Um, it really was the attempt to steal the election, to subvert democracy, you know, all of those things that might sort of feel hyperbolic, but are actually true. That's actually what was happening here. And in looking at the face of the charging document, the evidence looks pretty darn strong to me. You know, so much of it rests on Trump's state of mind. His lawyers, I mean, who knows what they'll argue, but I imagine that part of what they're going to argue is that he believed that the election was was stolen and that he was acting not as a candidate, but as president of the United States to protect the integrity of the election. Now, in the Georgia case, I guess there'll be more free speech issues raised. They tried to, as you say, nip that in the bud in the indictment, uh, the federal indictment. But what about that? How do you, I guess you argue what, that that reasonable people after 60 courts threw this out and after he'd been told many times would know that it was not stolen or... I'm not convinced that the government has to prove that Donald Trump believed in his heart of hearts that he had lost the election. What it couldn't do here was use an unlawful means to try to accomplish his goal. So he could challenge the election through filing as many court cases as he wanted to. He could even say, I believe I won. 
But when he then used an unlawful means through the fake electors and otherwise to try to accomplish his goal, that's when it became a crime. So I don't, I'm not convinced that you have to prove that he knew and believed that he had lost the election. You don't get to say ends justifies the means. So we're going to put in this fake set of electors here because I think I actually got more votes. The Georgia case, there are obviously many, many elements of the Georgia case that touch on the federal case. And so the question comes up of redundancy and does it in any way impair the federal case that the Georgia case is moving forward? And should that case have been brought or should have just been left to the federal courts to deal with it? Well, I don't think it will really impact the federal case much at all if particularly the federal case goes first. Um, You know, as a prosecutor, you never really want your witnesses out there um, testifying in another trial before you have an opportunity to put them up. Um, I don't know that it legally would complicate the federal case, but just from a matter of strategy, you'd rather have the first crack. And I, I sort of expect that the federal case will go to trial before the Georgia one does as well, for the reasons we've already mentioned here. And the ju- the judge judge seems to be committed to a speedy trial Yes, mm-hmm. uh, in Washington. Do these prosecutors, Sally, do, they, do these offices talk to each other? Uh, I mean, how do they, they – we have so many cases out there uh, that, you know, not to mention civil suits against Trump, uh, that they're all, you know, the, the, you, you wonder about traffic control. Right. Well, look, the best way not to get charged a lot of places is not to commit a lot of crimes. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. That's free legal advice from Sally <laughs> Yates for all our listeners. <laughs> but but no, I mean, you know, I've heard some of this criticism about sort of the lack of coordination and redundancy and all. It's not like there's a committee out there of prosecutors from across the country that is strategizing over how best to prosecute Donald Trump. Instead, these are all separate sovereigns, you know, the states and the feds. And yes, sometimes there can be discussion here and even sometimes some coordination about which charges are returned first. But there's not a, a group that is that is getting together and deciding what's going to be the best way to go after. And that's just not how it works. And not how it should work either. No, right? it's not. I mean, I meant... That would be a bad thing if we had people, prosecutors who are supposed to be making their decisions based on the facts and the evidence and what's just. Um, you don't want people coordinating on what's the best way to get somebody. But now that, Sally, now that the cases have been brought, would there be a conversation between the federal government and, the, uh, and, and Fulton County? I sure would expect that there would be, yes. We're speaking on Tuesday and on Thursday, the president's going to be booked. And um, I, I'm wondering, in the bail arrangement, uh, the judge said the agreement proscribes him from saying uh, or doing anything to menace or threaten witnesses or participants in the case. Uh, and he's been lectured on this by other judges. But how do you actually enforce that? I mean, is Fannie Willis actually going to put Donald Trump in, in the county jail if he misbehaves? I, I'm wondering... It's an unusual situation where the president is trying to try his case in public and, yes, intimidate witnesses, it appears. But what are you going to do about it? Are you going to take him off the campaign trail and put him in jail? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's not that unusual for high-profile defendants, particularly in public corruption cases, um, to want to try their case in the press and to even sometimes intimidate would-be witnesses. There's never been a case where they're running for president at the same time, though. And so that's where, as much as I am 100% a believer that there needs to be one system of justice that applies to everyone, we do have to take into account that he is running for president. And that does not give him license to threaten witnesses or to incite others to take action against witnesses. But I think that judges will give him a little running room to be critical of witnesses. I think that that's a little different than threatening. So um, in terms of whether there are other ways to enforce um, to enforce contempt proceedings other than just putting somebody in jail, you can the judge could find them. There could be other types of ramifications. But I think you're right. This is a really tricky area for for judges in all of these cases. I thought the judge in Washington addressed it in an interesting way by saying that she would have to expedite the trial if he behaved in that way for the protection of everybody involved. And that seems, he seems very much intent on trying to kick these. I mean, he asked for that trial to be held in 2026, for Pete's sake. So uh, he's eager to kick this beyond the election. And I want to talk about the implications of that. That might be the only thing that has a chilling effect on him. Say that is if he thinks that that's going to move the trial date up even more, which is a fair response from her. No, it is. Absolutely. First of all, is it a legitimate concern for Fulton County? You know, there's been all this talk about, well, on state charges, he could he could not use his pardon power if he were elected president to pardon himself. Should that be a consideration for the local prosecutor? Look, I, I don't know that that necessarily was a consideration for the no, local prosecutor. No, I'm not prosecutor. saying it was. Yeah. I'm saying, but should it be? I don't know. I that That's a hard question. I think that the state of Georgia certainly has an interest to be vindicated here of its own. And given his threats in terms of if he's reelected, in terms of pardoning all of the Gen 6 defendants, and given, frankly, the kind of statements that the other Republicans have have said about this prosecution um, before without even reading the indictments or otherwise, it can't help but be in the back of your mind um, in terms of of the importance of the rule of law and for that not to be inappropriately overturned by a new President Trump or someone else who, in an effort to curry favor with his supporters, um, makes some type of promise or takes some kind of action afterwards. You know, he has said, and the Republicans, you mentioned the other Republicans uh, have said, well, there's a two-tier system of justice. That's what Kev McCarthy has said over and over again. And what you said before is you have to give consideration to the fact that he's running for president of the United States. In a way, you're saying, yes, the, in this case, there is a two-tier system of justice in his favor. Right. And when I say you have to consider it, it's not that you have to consider it in terms of whether you bring charges or hold him to account, but rather in what type of speech is permissible for him in the time leading up to the trial. And it's it's trying to invoke a balancing, but no, you're right. That's what, you know, I hear people talk about this two systems of justice. And I think, 
you know, there must be people like Brian Stevenson and others whose head is exploding (laughs) at this when, yes, our country has had and still suffers from two systems of justice. But it's not that Donald Trump is on the losing end of this. The two systems has been, as Brian Stevenson eloquently said, that it's, you know, our our system treats you better. And I'm going to I'm going to mess up his quote. Our system treats you better if you're rich and guilty than it does if you're innocent and poor. And certainly we still suffer from racial disparities. That's the two tiers here. Not that Donald Trump is being unfairly held to account for just about the most serious crimes you could commit if you're president of the United States. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Val Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. You didn't comment on the New York case. And, you know, my reaction when that case was filed, like, I, again, I'm not a, a lawyer. Uh, and, uh, you know, much to my late mother's chagrin, I never went down that road. You did but, okay for uh, yourself, though, David. I would uh, imagine yeah, she, she but, feels all right, felt all right about that. But uh, thank you. But... Um, my reaction to the New York case is if you have to combine the words adult film star and novel legal theory in the same sentence, that maybe maybe you should think twice about it. The whole thing, you know, now, but I don't know, and you probably reviewed that as well. It seems like that is the case that those who want to defend the president keep pointing to as an example of overzealous prosecutors going after him. Yeah, look, I haven't paid, I haven't looked at that case as closely as the others. You know, we're in a heck of a situation, aren't we, when we're saying paying hush money <laughs> to a porn star and covering it up, eh, kind of back of the hand to that. That's not nearly as serious as all of the other crimes 
for which he's accused. But but I get your point. I mean, that's not certainly it doesn't go strike at the heart of democracy like the other ones do. Well, it does in this sense. The charge is that he covered it up, that it was really a campaign expense uh, because he was trying to and tell me if I'm messing this up, but because he was trying to obscure this case. He was trying to pay the hush money to keep her silent during the campaign in 2016. And so it should have been accounted for in that way. And there were some accounting issues as well. Maybe I'm asking you to intrude on my area, the the non-lawyer area, but does it complicate the other cases if that one, if there are public questions about that one? Well, look, I think anything that folks will point to that can... um question the fairness of whether he is being unfairly targeted um, can do that. On the other hand, look, if he hadn't committed all these other crimes for which he's accused here, we might be thinking more seriously about the hush money case here and the impact that that has. I think it's that it is just, it's dwarfed by the gravity of, of his others. But I do think it's important that prosecutors who are bringing these cases not go overboard. That I, I, you know, I believe he needs to be held to account. I am not one of those people who believes that it is more dangerous to bring this case, um, and and what it will do in tearing apart the country. I think because of the seriousness of these charges, it is far more dangerous not to bring it. But yet, it is still the prosecutor's responsibility to be fair and not to do stupid things that even if fair will be interpreted as victimizing a, a defendant. I'm, I'm not prepared to say that the New York case does that, but I think people who are already of the view that he's being unfairly treated will point to that. You know, one of the the strange peculiarities of this, and it goes to Trump's sort of a feral genius for uh, hijacking a narrative. But uh, the thought was that that the proliferation of cases would damage him politically. Uh, so far, what they've done, at least so far, insofar as the Republican primaries uh, are concerned, has made him uh, stronger. And the thing that has made that happen is his uh, ability to hijack the narrative and turn this into what he calls election interference that that this all these cases are piled on him uh because this is the uh the, a corrupt and rigged system and the Biden administration and the elites trying to stop him from advocating for his uh for his followers and so in a weird way you know you'd think well geez all of these cases have to influence people's sense of his uh, appropriateness for uh, for the role of of president but in the short run it's worked the other way and the th- the reason i want to that's my political commentary wedged before in before a question the question is this he has basically turned this into a a war on the system of justice a war on uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, and it is rooted in this argument that the system is corrupt. I'm eager to talk to you about the stress on the system because it's 
it's clear, you know, we partisanize things that have never been partisanized to this degree before. Uh, and I know you spent 30 years in the Justice Department, in the justice system. Tell me what your feelings are about this. What's your level of concern? Well, I, I mean, I am concerned. Concern doesn't even really seem to capture it. And you, know, you mentioned 30 years. I, As I've mentioned before, I was a public corruption prosecutor in Atlanta. And it's not unusual for um, public officials who are prosecuted to raise a, a defense, if not in court, but usually, you know, in the public, that they're being unfairly targeted for some reason, um, whether it's because they're a different party or this person has an axe to grind. Um, that's something that I dealt with in case after case after case on a much, much, much smaller um, scale, obviously, than when you're talking about prosecuting the president. And I think that's when it's incumbent upon the prosecutors who are doing this and the Department of Justice, or, or in this case, the special counsel, to be really comfortable that what they're doing is the right thing to do and not pulling any punches, trying to ingratiate themselves to folks out there who are distrustful or to Donald Trump or Republicans or anybody else, not pulling any punches, but also not doing what I just mentioned a minute ago, not being unfair and going overboard, but rather just doing the right thing and recognizing that some people are going to have one view, others will have another one, but that you have to keep your eye on the ball and your head down and hope that over time that when all of the evidence comes out, that people who are willing to hear the truth, and not everybody is, but people who are willing to hear the truth will. Now, I know that sounds kind of Pollyannish here, but I think doing anything else subverts our system of justice here. You can't try to like fashion charges that'll win over Trump supporters or win over others. That's just folly. You're never going to get some of those folks. So you have to just enforce the law and do it fairly and evenly and on a purely nonpartisan basis and and hope that it may take some time, and I'm not suggesting this is going to happen in the next 18 months, that our country will, or the majority of people, will eventually see the truth in this. Uh, but I'm worried now because not only do you have a defendant with the largest microphone in the world who is constantly chipping at that public confidence in our justice system, and specifically DOJ and FBI and others. You've got other people who are, are essentially who indicted co-conspirators in that, and that they're not calling them out for it. Well, more than that, Sally, let me just say one of the kind of th uh, things we've seen among his fellow candidates and other Republicans, because he is very popular in his party and because large numbers of Republicans have uh, embraced the idea that the election was stolen, that this is part of a, a politically inspired uh, campaign against him, that these indictments, you see Republican politicians, rather than defending his behavior, attacking the weaponization of the justice system. And so adding, basically adding logs to the fire 
and giving people a sense that that worries me a lot. And they, I, especially because I think most of them know better. I think the sort of aggregation of all these voices, you know, amplifies Trump's uh, complaints, even as they're trying not to speak to the specifics of Trump. It amplifies and legitimizes in some ways, even those who will take the really bold step of saying, it looks like Donald Trump lost the election, will still give him cover when it comes to his weaponization allegations. And, you know, I think we give people, we being the public, a pass on that in some ways, because we'll say, well, look, you know, he's running for president. That's the base. This person can't afford to alienate the base. So that's kind of what they have to say. I don't accept that. That's only what you have to say if the only goal that matters is personally getting elected, whether it's for your own personal advancement or your party's advancement. If that trumps everything else, then yes. But is it too much for us to ask that our leaders would actually put what's best for the country first, even if that meant maybe they lose a presidential election, but that that should come first. I I think we're letting people off way too easily by saying, well, they can't afford to alienate the base. That's only if if their own ambition is the most important thing. What is the, what, what, um, it it sounds like you feel like in the long term that doing the right thing uh, from the standpoint of prosecutors uh, and just keeping, as you say, keeping your head down, keeping focused on the law will out in terms of public opinion. But you look at polling on institutions generally and, you know, but the courts, certainly the Supreme Court uh, is now viewed in highly partisanized ways and as numbers are are off, there are large numbers of Americans who do accept this weaponization argument. How corrosive is it? Oh, it's incredibly corrosive and it has impacts beyond just what happens in a Donald Trump case. It has an impact when DOJ is prosecuting the -the run-of-the-mill cases too. And jurors have not a healthy skepticism, but a a real cynicism then and distrust about their law enforcement institutions. Um, That's incredibly corrosive. I mean, this, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Department of Justice or a free press or all of these democratic institutions that are so important for the fabric of our country, you know, I kind of thought during the Trump administration, it was the fabric was fraying it feels like it's just ripping right now, more than fraying. And, you know, I'm, I'm not so pessimistic as to think all is lost here. That's one reason why I think it's the responsibility of the prosecutors, as you said, to keep your head down and, and hope that in time, again, those who are willing to hear truth, and I underscore that because there are some folks, it's not going to matter what the facts are. You're never going to win them over. But I want to believe that over time, that becomes a smaller and smaller group. And really, what other alternative do we have? It's, you know, we can't lose um, our nexus to the truth. And that's one of the things that has been so troubling to me through this whole 
Trump time is is the the fact that truth seems kind of optional now. And if it happens to be accurate, that's okay. But if it's not, that doesn't really matter either. We're not we're not debating anymore over a common set of facts. But what other option do we have other than to continue to battle to speak the truth? That is, of course, his project has been to impeach the credibility of all institutions so that he is the arbiter of truth. And uh, he's been remarkably successful uh, at that. And I think history will look back at this with some amazement at the degree to which he has been uh, successful. But as I said, other politicians have have aided and abetted him, as you said, they're unindicted co-conspirators in that project. Not all of them, though. So you have a couple of, you have some Republicans in Georgia uh, who uh, stood up. What is it about those guys that allowed them to uh, resist the pressures that others have? I mean, I, I should say there are people all over the country, Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the House in Arizona, election officials across the country, legislators across the country, none so prominent, though, as in the public consciousness as Raffensperger, your Secretary of State, and Kemp, the governor. How did, how did they navigate these rocky shoals? Yeah, I, I don't know them well enough to know what's inside of them, but I do know that I believe most public servants view themselves as that, as servants. And here, the integrity of the Georgia election was being falsely attacked here. And Raffensperger was responsible for the integrity of the Georgia election, and he knew that this was false. And so he wasn't going to be bullied um, into undermining what what he had taken an oath to protect, and that is the Georgia election. And I would say the same thing about our governor. He knew that for his state that the election here was handled the right way. And so I probably disagree with him on policy grounds on a whole lot of things, but I am grateful and, and admire the fact that they both stood up on this. We mentioned the other candidates. Governor DeSantis has made a point of saying that uh, when and if he becomes president, that he would not treat the Justice Department and the FBI as sort of quasi-independent agencies or agencies with which uh, the president should keep an arm's length. And of course, a lot of those reforms were installed after Watergate because of the abuse of the Justice Department and the abuse of the FBI. But that's an applause line for him in those audiences. I'm eager to hear your reaction to that and what that would mean. Well, there goes the rule of law. Um, And the fact that Donald Trump has been able to have such a corrosive impact on the, the mindset of folks in terms of what's appropriate and what is good for our country. I mean, step back for that for a minute. Do people realize that they're applauding using the Department of Justice as a political tool to go after your enemies and, and to punish those with whom you disagree? Did they realize that's what they're applauding here? I, I can't believe that that's actually well. What, what they would argue, want. what they would argue, is they're doing the opposite. That what is going on now is that, and what they're proposing is tighter controls so as to prevent that. I mean, it, it's a bit Orwellian, but that's the argument that they're making. 
that this is that what you describe is what's happening now and what they describe will 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 discipline these agencies so that they won't engage in political escapades. I understand that's what they believe, or at least what they at least what some folks believe, yeah, or what they're saying. But you have to go back to facts and truth again. And just because that's what some people say or believe, that doesn't make it right and that doesn't make it truth. And you know, I absolutely believe that the Justice Department it is and should be acting in a way that not only is, is not acting in a partisan way, but avoids even the appearance of that. But you can only go so far in that that can't then be a reason not to do your job just because some people are going to disagree with it. And DOJ is doing its job and appointing the special counsel and the special counsel then following the facts and the law. And I hate to say it, if there's some people who believe that that's partisan or are going to say they think that's partisan, you just have to roll with that as long as you are absolutely confident that it's not. You know, in this context, I should ask you, you spoke at the Democratic Convention in 2020 and you endorsed uh, Joe Biden. Um, was that, did, how much contemplation, I mean, how much did you, agonize over that, given your history as a uh, acting attorney general, deputy attorney general, and someone who has been in the, you know, on the justice, justice department side of uh, of public life all your career. No, I understand. No, no, you were, you were, no, no, you were years removed from that. I understand that. And would not have done that. Heck, I never, you know, even put a yard sign up for the whole 25 plus years that I was in at DOJ. But no, you're right. It's not something that um, comes naturally to me. Uh, it's, and, and it's something with which I was somewhat uncomfortable and thought hard about. But the truth is, I believed so strongly that electing Joe Biden and defeating Donald Trump was absolutely essential for the health of our country, not for the Democratic Party, but for the viability of our democracy going forward, that I was was happy to step outside my comfort zone a bit there and, and to speak. Would never have done it if I were still in government, but I was happy to do that because I believed then, believe now, that it was that important. Yeah, well, there's nothing that's happened that uh, would uh, conflict with your fears since that time. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. Let me ask you what may be an uncomfortable question about the, given that 
uh, about the handling of this Hunter Biden case because it's now become a thing. Just clinically, as someone who held high position in the Justice Department, explain what happened there. How is it that there could be a five and a half year investigation? There is an agreement. There are codicils in that agreement that apparently exempt Hunter Biden from being prosecuted in the future for things that they investigated. And that is not fully aired until a a judge asks the questions. And now the whole thing's unraveled and it looks like it's going to go to trial. That has a kind of messy look to it, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think that Attorney General Garland took the right step in leaving the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in place uh, to complete that investigation. And certainly he was thinking about their um, the importance of not just doing justice, but the appearance of justice there, and was giving him the decision-making authority. You know, I don't know any more about this other than what I've read about it, but I too have scratched my head on how it is that they hadn't talked about this before they got into the courtroom. I mean, assuming that they hadn't and had a meeting of the minds as to what that provision meant. In the plea agreement, and you're right. Now it seems to have all blown up and has gotten messy, and now it's a special counsel, and now we don't know. Yeah, I don't understand how that happened. It serves the purposes of those who uh, who want to make the case, the the sort of Trumpian case that nothing's on the legit and everything's messy, and and you know you've got the House Republicans who have tried, who you know, like so many Inspector Clouseau's trying to find the crime to justify their investigation, who now have uh, glommed onto this. Yeah, all of it. I mean, I've maybe said this before here, but I certainly have said it elsewhere. I'm the son of an immigrant who fled anarchy, who fled um, a justiceless state and came here because America's different. So these institutions, I mean, my objection, I suspect yours to President Trump is not about policy, although I disagree with his policies to the extent I understand them, but it's the complete disdain for rules and laws and norms and institutions that are the bulwark of a democratic society. He doesn't believe they apply to him, and he thinks people who do are suckers. That's a very tough thing for a a democracy if that's what your leader believes. Absolutely. This is not about policies. I think people of goodwill can, in good faith, have different views from a policy perspective about what's the best path forward for our country. And we're supposed to debate that. I mean, the whole idea is is that, again, you have a common set of facts and you debate the policies and the American people get to vote and decide which direction they want to go. What we're talking about with Trump, this is not conservatism here. Play this is this someone as you've just more eloquently pointed out than I can, someone who subverts all of the rules and the laws and the institutions, all in service of him personally. Could there be anything more destructive for our country? Worrisome. I want to talk to you about something completely different. Those of you who are listeners, who are regular listeners, know that I've had a couple of conversations with Sally here. One on, uh, that was uh, for my uh, Axe Files television show back in the day, and another follow up. And in those conversations, we talked a lot about mental health. And we talked about it because we share a very sad history, which is we both lost parents to suicide. You were 
reticent at first about that, of talking about that, as I was, by the way. We've talked about that. You've since uh, become very active in the whole mental health area, suicide prevention. Tell me more about that and what you've been up to lately and what your perception of the challenges and solutions are. Well, I have you to thank, actually, for being more public. You you brought me out of my shell on that. But it's also been a situation where I feel like if whatever public platform I have here, that I want to be able to use it for good um, and to be able to have a positive impact. And this is an area um, in mental health and particularly suicide prevention where, unfortunately, we both can speak from personal experience. And personal experience matters here in terms of being able to connect with people. I know with my dad, it was the stigma of mental illness that in large part prevented him from from getting the kind of treatment that he needed. And so to the extent I can do anything to have an impact to to try to destigmatize mental illness, um, to be able to make it easier for people to be, connect with, with treatment, that's, you know, that's time well spent. I couldn't agree more. My dad was the loveliest, one of the smartest people that I ever knew. And he was a mental health professional and he touched a lot of lives at his funeral, lots of folks coming up. I may have said this last time, but saying, gee, uh, they didn't know how he had died. And they said, you know, he saved my life. And the irony of that was so hard to uh, comprehend. But this stigma is such a uh, barrier to people getting the help they need. And, um, you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again and again and again, mental illness, depression, part of the human condition as much as cancer or any other affliction. And we need to treat it as such, both in how we regard it and our willingness to go and get treatment. So I really, I didn't honestly know when I asked you about it the first time that I was treading on tender territory. I didn't mean to out you, but I'll tell you the cause of mental health gained a great warrior in you. So um, I'm glad I did, just because it's wonderful to have your incredible voice out there. So thank you for that. Well, no, I thank you. And actually, I wasn't trying to keep it a secret. In fact, you know, it wasn't a secret, particularly here in Georgia. It's just that I found it so painful to talk about. Yeah. And I I know you do too, but having done that more now, while it still is painful to talk about, I, you know, to think that you may be able to reach someone who is in need and who just from, you know, if there's just one person who gets help that wouldn't otherwise, that's worth any discomfort in talking about that. You uh, also uh, have been involved lately in a fairly high profile case in your role as a private attorney, you were hired to probe sexual harassment and abuse in the the National Women's Soccer League, in the Soccer League. I thought of it this morning as I was watching the news and I was thinking about our conversation because there was this weird, awkward moment. Uh, the, The Spanish team that just won the world championship had their celebration and the president of Spanish soccer planted a kiss right on the lips of the main Spanish star in a way that was just creepily awkward. So tell me about that and what you found, because it had quite an impact. And speak more broadly about this issue in sports, because we've seen it now among gymnasts. We've seen it among 
soccer players. Uh, and obviously you deal with it a lot. You've investigated workplaces where are we making progress on this issue? We're making progress, but we're still nowhere near where we need to be. Um, I was hired by the U.S. Soccer Federation to do an independent investigation of both sexual abuse and emotional abuse and in women's professional soccer. And so our investigation spanned all of the teams going back about 10 or 15 years. And what we found there was not a single isolated incident of abuse, but really systemic abuse with within the um, women's women's professional soccer and beyond the coaches that were involved in this, what was most troubling were that there were people both at the league level and at the federation level that had at a minimum a lot of red flags that bad stuff is going on and just did nothing about it. And when some of the players had tried to come forward about it, they would just be given basically the back of the hand. And this was combined with a long-standing system of emotional abuse that really starts back in, in youth soccer. Not every team, not every coach, I'm not suggesting that, but starts back in youth soccer where a lot of the players had been so conditioned from their youth soccer experiences and even some of the college experiences not to recognize the type of behavior as emotional abuse. And you know, I'm not talking about just tough coaching or yelling from the sidelines. It's, it's behavior that's not designed to uh, make a better player, but rather in some ways to, to actually break that player down emotionally and make them um, subservient to, to the coach. And it was because two players were incredibly brave and came forward to the athletic and told their story, and that broke. That's what spurred the investigation. And it was really rewarding to have an opportunity to talk with these players, to gain their trust, and then to lay it all out in a report that that called out what had happened and, and as best we could determine who knew what when and what they did. And I'm really encouraged that U.S. soccer is taking very positive steps going forward to put in the basic protections that just weren't even there um, to try to ensure that this doesn't happen again and that there are mechanisms and, and places where players can go and be heard if there are problems. But it really starts back with, you know, back at the youth level with players and parents not accepting that kind of behavior just because they might want their daughter to get a college scholarship. So sorry yeah. for the long, for the long rant. No, there, no, no. I'm, I asked for a, uh, for everything that you just said. I really wanted to know where we are. I think one of the franchises that was touched by this is, uh, is my own hometown franchise in Chicago. And I think there's a change of leadership there, partly as a result of the work that you did. So well, it was uh, a whole team of people. Me if I'm Let wrong. me say that. So it wasn't just yes. me. It was, in fact, an all-female team of lawyers uh -huh. who investigated this, and that was a, a terrific experience as well. Well, Sally, uh, as I said, it's always great to see you. I look forward to seeing you down the line, perhaps around uh, some mental health events. But no one has a keener sense of prosecutions and 
the rule of law and all that entails uh, than you. So this was a timely chat, and it's always great to catch up with you. Well, thank you, David. It's always wonderful to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.